Welcome to the Cognitive Rampage Podcast, the exploratory podcast asking you to question yourself and everything else. It's about trying to find the best help that we can find for people. Many times we get lost in the emotion of our lives rather than use our wisdom. Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you are living your Cognitive Rampage. This show is for you if you are experiencing OCD or anxiety in any sense, whether you are dealing with it yourself, have a friend, know someone you are, or a caretaker to someone that is experiencing this. Uh, Dr. Zarita Ona is a licensed clinical psychologist for California, 14 years. Uh, She's been working with children, adolescents, and adults struggling with anxiety, emotional regulation problems. She has written three or four different books uh, on this topic, uh, even co-authored a book early in her career as well. She's been nominated uh, for... Uh, her speaking and practice. Uh, she is a member of, uh, she's an ACT practitioner, a hardcore behavioralist. Um, just amazing. Her recent book, The ACT Workbook for Teens with OCD, Unhook Yourself and Live Life to the Full, uh, is the most recent book, but she has a list of those. She is a specialist in this, in OCD, anxiety. We have a great converse, uh, conversation. Uh, we talk a little bit about the differences between a behavioral approach versus a cognitive approach, the combination of the two. Um, she gives a couple uh, tips for people to, you know, use if, say, you can't, you know, find your way to a specialist, uh, especially the uh, an ACT specialist, one of the things she uh, practices in and focuses with, um, a, a wonderful theory. Um, she gives you some tips again. She tells her story. Her backstory is quite interesting. Uh, if somebody needed to know what it felt like to have anxiety uh, and come from a stressful situation, she certainly has that background as well. Uh, this was a fun podcast. I really enjoyed it. I love talking about different theoretical approaches, um, what's working, what's not working. It's one of my favorite topics to go on. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona. As we walk into uh, your background, right, before we get into all the books you've written, the things that you do, what you focus on, I always like to know uh, from a practitioner standpoint, retired practitioner standpoint on my side, uh, what are the stories, what walked you into becoming a psychologist? Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question. I think there are many, many moments when um, that, that having capitalized in my career as a psychologist, but the earliest one is when I was 14, 15 years old, I was clear that I wanted to be a psychologist. I that knew young. very Yeah, yeah, I knew very early. I was reading the book Crime and Punishment by Fedor Dostoevsky. And the book was so captivating, right? Because he really did an amazing job describing all the struggles the main character was going through. So I started just getting super curious. And then I had this philosopher, um, professor who actually were doing a lot of readings and talking about human behavior and all the, I think, complexity of living Mm. in a very unpredictable and certain world. So I started very curious about that. And then with time, one of the biggest things that has been important in my life is cultivate long-lasting relationships, right? There are people that just connect and we troubleshoot and we travel in life together. 
So I think it was, those are maybe the main two things that how we are so complex. I think humans, we carry so much our histories, our experiences, the messages that we receive, but also this capacity to connect with another person in such an intimate level. So I think those two things together have led me to just have this strong passion for helping people to make these micro changes in life and making shifts from being very stuck with worries, fears, obsessions to have incredible lives. So uh, knowing it's at such a young age, right, being intrigued by that, sharing those interpersonal uh, moments, connecting with people, uh, certainly all great qualities of a wonderful psychologist. So what pushed you to, I mean, because you specialize, right, in OCD, anxiety, um, things of that nature, right? What what pushed you to specialize in those? Well, that's 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 a great question. Now, do you want the longer version? Do you want the shortest version? Uh, Just the version. (laughs) Just the version. It doesn't matter. Okay. Um, I think the biggest thing is that I was born in the midst of a dictatorship in Bolivia. My country was in a dictatorship from 1970 to 1978. Mm. Um, years later, maybe 10, 12 years later, we did have another another um, military regiment. And then 10 years later, another one, right? So I think my experience, my political and social context has been growing up in a culture of fear in which there are clear rules about what you're supposed to do, otherwise you will be dead. And I live in a time in which there was exchange of political prisoners, people were just um, deported. So I saw very early what means to live in a culture of fear. Um, And later on, as things progress into a more democratic system, it's impossible for any person to not be shaped by that. So my family also, while they are incredible, loving and kind people, I saw very early how they were making decisions based on fears and worries. And even though they never told me that explicitly, I grew up watching that. So in my life, as as I was um, getting older, I did my best to live a life without fears or trying to approach things. But at some point in my life, I think in my mid-30s, I realized that even though I worked so hard to overcome my own fears, I was still playing it safe. I was still approaching some things with safety crutches. Um, I stay in relationships, romantic relationships that weren't good for me because I was afraid of being lonely or just making a mistake. Um, I sometimes stay at jobs that they weren't fulfilling for me any longer, but I was very familiar So I think in my personal history, I have experienced very closely what means to grow up in a culture of fear and what means to be making decisions based on fears and worries. And even though we do our best to dance with them, sometimes they are too familiar to us, right? So I think that is my... um, I think that's one of the biggest things why it's important for me to help people to make a shift from where they are Fears and worries are not our enemies, but if we go along with them all the time, we definitely narrow our life and we don't become the person that we want to be or that we're meant to be. So I think to those those struggles and to my own, you know, uh, journeys, dancing with my fears, that's where my specialization has shaped so much more in my practice. 
Yeah, I, that's a that's amazing. I I mean, and scary. I well, tell me more. What was it like living like that? I mean, you're talking. I mean, it's a full time war zone. I mean, you're talking constant hypervigilance as a teen. I can easily see though why it yeah. pushed you now to to specialize in that. But walk me through what day to day life was like living through that. Yeah. So when I so That's I crazy. think I was a kid when that when I I was um, you know when we had one of the dictatorships in my country. But um, I remember very early on Sundays there used to be these humongous trucks coming into the neighborhood and they were delivering food, the basics, flour, milk eggs for the families so all the every family the adults used to get together grab the items and there there was this collective distribution right how many kids this family has you know who gets the bread who does that um we did have food definitely no it's not that we were starving however at that young age i was maybe 40 years old i remember this strong sense of the ass is more important than the eye right like people were protecting making sure that every family gets food See, that's and a that's that a beautiful thing that the the whole community comes together and then rather than just grab what you want and every person for themselves they started working together as an active community to make sure everybody had enough of what they needed that's a beautiful thing especially in a time like that Exactly. It was, it's really, it was, I think, very, it's one of my fondest memories. It was rocky, certainly, because we still hear the news about the, the exchange of political prisoners, right? How people were deported, uh, how some of my uh, relatives from that extended family actually had to hide themselves because they had some political beliefs and they were public about it. Uh, and then in the midst of that, people were getting together. It was more important to make sure that all the kids get eggs and milk and the families get flowers, right? So it wasn't perfect. Certainly there are all these differences that show up. But overall, this sense that together we can handle this was so strong, super strong, right? Um, so that was one of the memories that I had, right? And um, then I remember many times after in certain neighborhoods, after 6 p.m., they couldn't be more than three people walking together in the streets. Oh, wow. Right? And only until 8 p.m. So basically you had a curfew yep. per neighborhood, per city, right? And if they were, they, let's say that by accident, you went out with your friends or whatever you were doing and there were four people in the street, you know, either they could arrest you, right? Um, or they will just give you, yeah. So, or, and, if, and I mean, when you get arrested in a third world country, it's a little bit different than what we're used to see in the States, right? Yeah, so sure. In, um, so there was always this sense of risk. Um, I think I remember a couple of birthday parties, right? We tried to celebrate them very, very early, like, you know, 11 a.m., 10 a.m. So we didn't get in problems by the end of the day, right? So that lasted for maybe the first decade of my life, basically, Um there's another memory that comes to my mind. Um, we used to listen that radio. There was a couple of radio shows, like 11 a.m. The whole family was listening, right? And we want to know what's happening. But we also were paying attention how many people were gone, right? Did you know that person? Did you know her uncle actually disappeared? Do they find him, right? So were conversations like yeah. that, imagine, it's really... It's really, I think, when I look back, right, my generation, myself, we have in shape, right? But it's you cannot, you cannot become who you are today without that history, right? That influences how you relate to things and how you relate to fear and worries and anxieties. Yeah, I, I wanted you to tell that story. One, I want to know about it and, and can't imagine what the life is like. But I know a practitioner rarely gets to tell their story. 
um, especially during a session, right? Because it's not about you, right? We're talking about them and you don't get a lot of time to tell that story. And essentially what you're coming from, I mean, can I, I love how you have a positive spin on it, right? And you find the journey and that's, that's part of the change, I'm sure. But the idea that if anybody was going to have anxiety, live in fear and, and have some issues with that, an OCD that would pop up from this anxiety, right? It would be the background in which you have, you have come from. Uh, and, and experience, right? So I, I wanted to get some of that story out there because some people, right, uh, I know and you know that when they have anxiety or OCD, they you don't understand is their favorite line. They tell yeah. people, you just don't understand. You don't get it. You don't know what I'm going through. And I think it's important, especially for practitioners that specialize in something like you, that people do know that you do know exactly how it feels and, and, and what it, what the experience is like. I appreciate what you are saying in the sense that I think in the past, the old model, especially in clinical psychology, has been that psychologists were these perfect human beings. And we, you know, we, you know, we have this, you know, flat expression, yeah, right? And yeah. we're super, well, like, we like, have all our life put Like together. these gentlemen behind me, right? I got Dr. <laughs> Albert Ellis, Carl Jung, um, Sigmund Freud, and Jean oh. Piaget. Right. They're all behind me. Right. This was that era you're talking about. Right. That stone face right. psychoanalyst or behavioralist or whatever, you know, feeling. But it's certainly I think the cat is getting more and more out of the bag that psychologists and mental health counselors become that because they experienced some fucked up things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they went through it. And, and, and like you started, we asked questions, right? Why am I like this? Or why is someone else like this? And those questions walk you down a rabbit hole before you're going, oh, my God. So that's why. That's why. Oh, my gosh. You start getting answers. Then you want to share those answers with everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the hashtag I have is therapists are humans, right? Therapists <laughs> get anxious. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think in my work, I am a hardcore behaviorist, right? Like a radical behaviorist. However, I don't think a behaviorist has to be like in that way when you have like this stone face and this very detached model, actually. Um, maybe it's my Latino background, but I do think that behavioral science can be accessible to people, can be fun, and we actually can be very real with people, right? On that sense that this is, you know, how I am talking to you, Adam, that's how I talk to my clients and how I talk to my friends, right? So there is no this distinction about different hats. Putting the therapist um, hat on, you lean a certain way and, well, tell me how that makes oh, you feel, right? So, and well, I, I don't think a lot of people under, would understand that aren't practitioners that when you say, even though you're a behavioralist, you still have some humanity to you. Um <laughs> Because a lot of people look at behavioralists as simply going, look, it's all in the behavior. It's not about thought, emotion, right? It's simply about the behavior part. And so for those that don't know, I I wanted to kind of explain that a little bit, what you meant about why even being a behavioralist. Well, then John Paget, who's back here, uh, that, that would be up your alley then, yeah? Yes, yes, I think, yes, and Albert Ellis too, right? So I think, thank you for making that point, because you're right, when I tell people, well, I am a behaviorist, people get scared, like, oh my gosh, because there is idea that we're very robotic, and we're all about worksheets, right? But I think being a contemporary behaviorist, being a functional, uh, contextual behaviorist, conscious machine, right? Um, it basically means that we understand how we have become the person that we are, how we interact with our context. But our context is not just what happened five minutes ago. It's what happens in the social context, what happens in the political context, what happens in my personal history, what happens in my relationships. So our context is actually a much broader term that helps us to understand how we have become 
who we are and how we're interacting with with our you know with our internal struggles in that way we do it so it's not this narrow way as it used to be right in times have changed um but going back to what you say i think that it is important to to um to really normalize the idea that psychologists, we are not these perfect beings, right? And we're not, you know, that's not because we're psychologists, it means that we have our life put together. Actually, we are humans and we have so many things we struggle. And the way that sometimes I describe my relationship to fears is like, I have a collection of fears, right? Of all types of sizes and shapes, right? It just happens that I have learned the skills to dance with them and I face them, some of them, because it's truly important to my heart, right? Uh, like talking to you, for example, right? I tend to be more an introverted person, right? Um, I love to socialize, but in general, I think this whole thing about doing things in social media, it's something that I wouldn't have done maybe seven years ago. It just happens that for me, it's extremely important right now to spread the word about how behavioral science and some of these skills can be helpful to people to get unstuck, right? Um, so it's, it's just that. It's different to be related to these fears in this way. Well, how do you take care of you? How do you make sure, right? I mean, because I, I understand the job itself. So how do you take care of yourself yeah. uh, along the way from, from, well, how do you allow yourself to continue to dance with your fears and not be consumed by them? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, a couple of things. You're going to laugh at this, but when I was in graduate school, graduate school was a very, it's a very intense experience. Um, you know, you have to read a lot. You have to write a lot. You've seen clients. You have, we used to have this um, this class. It, it, it's called case conference. Uh, and this class for four hours, basically, we're just talking about cases and doing role plays and doing interventions. So it was brutal, Right. And for me, of course, as an ESL, having English as my second language, it was three times harder, right? Uh, if my classmates took maybe two hours on reading a paper, it took me six, right? Mm, mm, so yeah. at that time, here's what I can tell you. I make sure once a week, if not once a month, I was going to dance salsa from 9 to 11 on a Friday evening in a mom and pop's club, right? Nothing fancy, nothing pretentious, just a place where there is this loud music, right? There is a DJ, sometimes a band, and you're just dancing and shaking your body. The best. <laughs> <laughs> just let, just letting it go and get, well, a doc, or Stephen Kotler would uh, get in that flow state, right? Get in that flow state where you're, you turn the mind off. That's right. I needed that. It was very engaging. And if you think about the dancing, right, can be actually, it's not only, um, it's not only fun, but also requires a lot of, a different type of, I think, experience, right? Because you're coordinating your body, the music, the, if you're dancing with another person, right? So dancing has been big in my life. Um, and definitely I, I, um, I try to go to the gym on average four to five times. Um, not because I'm trying to build up this, you know, very strong body, because actually that's not the case, right? Um, <laughs> but what I can tell you is that it really cleans my head. For me, when I'm doing something physical, right, those 60 minutes, it really just reduces the stress. It's a big booster for my mood. So over the years, that's what I have been doing, right? Um, sometimes more more than others, but certainly the same thing, dancing at least once a month, exercising. And then I practice yoga every Sunday for the last 14, 15 years. I have been doing what is called the Bikram yoga, the hot yoga, 
for 80 minutes, I'm torturing my body in this, you know, steam room, uh, which is the best. Um, but those two things have been, have allowed me to do the things that I do. Um, and I think the other thing is that I, um, <laughs> I love to chat with people and some conversations are, are just so much fun and so rich, <laughs> right? I just love to have a good chat with a good cup of coffee, right? As long as I have that, like you just can keep going. So for self-care, those four things are important to me. It, it sounds like you need your own podcast is what it sounds like. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you need to have your own podcast and get this stuff out there. So uh, you should do that. You should set up your own podcast and and start doing it. Start getting the message out there. I mean, you, you've already started right with the books you've written. Let's let's start with the the first book you've written because uh, I think they find a way to to progress themselves. You you would know better than me, right? As you write one, then you're like, oh wait, I didn't cover this, right? I want to get to this angle. So tell me about the first book. Well, thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, maybe. 10, 12 years ago, my mentor, he, we were at a conference, we were having dinner, and my mentor said, Patricia, I think you are ready to write a book. And he said, I am writing this book. I would like to invite you to be a co-author. And I remember the day that I, I cry, you know, I cry for hours, right, crying the dinner, and I say, I, and I say, Maestro, I don't think I can. It's not my language. It's it's a lot. You have written 50 books, right? What do I know about writing? And he said, I think you are ready. And I, I think you have something to say. And he left there and I cried. I was very grateful. I said, I don't think I can. 30 days later, I was knocking the door on his office saying, <laughs> fine, I'm going to do it. How do we do it? Right? Um, but that time, my mentor, he... Um, he ha- literally has written over 50 books. He and his wow. best friend. What's his, what's his name? Uh, Matthew McKay. Okay. So, yeah. So he has written uh, When Anger Hurts. That was a classic, the stress management book. Um, but by that time, he and his best friend, they were writing, you know, one chapter every two weeks. It took me a different, different time frame, right? <laughs> um I think that was the first the first book that I co-authored. I actually wrote um, stuff related to how to face our fears and how to deal with relationships, how to be assertive in the context of relationships. And that was the first exposure I got to writing, and it was hard. I love it, but also there was a lot of sweat and tears and suffering coming, right? <laughs> Everything together. Doesn't, doesn't it take that, though? Um, you know, when I was writing my, my first, it... There was, I I lived in the back room. I wrote late nights at like six or like, I don't know, two in the morning to six in the morning, right? That's when I disappeared, right? But but to make something, right? I think through pain, the pressure, right? It's like we almost have, like everyone, to make something great, you have to almost put yourself under this pressure, this almost the pain, the tears, right? You're you're, you're forcing something out, right? Putting something out there to get something, you know, great. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying because it's exactly right that, right? That doing the things that we care about, they are going to come with some form of a struggle, right? Whether it's like trying to find the right words, right? How do you say this? Some form of pain. They just go together, right? Like doing the things that we care, they are going to come not just with flowers and butterflies, right? They also come with a lot of sweat. and Yeah, so I think it's important to always remember that. 
And that first book uh, was, you were still writing around the fear area, the fear aspect, anxiety aspect. Um, is that is that the writing that sort of led you, well, one, it told you you could do it, but led you to write the next few? I think um, that's a great question, right? Um, so that book was focusing how to, it, that book had, uh, it's actually a super cool book because it has 13 different skills that any person dealing with any form of anxiety, whether it's fears about public speaking, fears about panic attacks, fears about phobias, taking elevator, driving on the freeway, um, or a person that has depression, that is struggle with mood, mood uh, regulation problems, they will get at least you know, a bunch of skills there in the book, right? They take a mini test in one of the chapters, and based on the scores of the, the test, they say, okay, you have to read chapter three, five, and seven. A super cool model, right? Yeah. Um, well, but, but before you before you go, uh, there's something I want to chat. To, I don't want to skip over yeah. the book. What the the title of the book? It's called Mind and Emotions. Yeah, Mind and Emotions. Um, you mentioned something there, right? Is is you mentioned a lot of fears, right? And uh, I've had a few people reach out to me lately on email uh, asking me about it, and which I, I know is true. You can you have anxiety about the panic attack it, itself? Right. So that the fear that you're having is fearing the panic attack from happening. Can you talk a little bit about that etiology, how that happens, how that begins and how that can manifest into into people and 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 prolong, you know, them feeling anxiety? Yeah, that's a super great question, because I think sometimes can be confusing for people. Right. But basically, we usually call the anxiety about anxiety, the fear about the fear, right? And what happens is at some point, we actually, we develop these beliefs about maybe I shouldn't be afraid. Why I'm being afraid, right? It's a bad thing to be afraid, right? We don't realize that experiencing fears, worries, anxieties, and obsessions are the norm, right? Wherever we go, we are going to have them, right? The question is, can I learn to make room for them as a stuff that happens, right? Um, or do I go into this, oh my gosh, why I'm feeling this, right? The later response, the oh my gosh response to our fears, it's more consistent when I am scared about being scared, right? When I am forgetting that actually as human being, I am physiologically wired, right? To experience all that yucky stuff that comes at times, right? It's not that we're fault that get anxious. It's not that we're fault that get scared. It just happens to us. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can be very adaptive. If you think about the time that we're living in the pandemic, in COVID-19, because we are scared, we're using masks, we're washing our hands, we're using hand sanitizer, we're keeping distance from people. It's keeping us actually alive. Yeah, we're we're, very, we're right? living a lot of OCD symptoms right now is what, is what we're doing. That's what we're living right now. Well, hand washing, not touching people or things, staying away from them. These are all symptoms of OCD, man. Yes. For some people who has fears of contamination, yes, right? Uh, when you think about also OCD, there are all types of obsessions that people have, pedophile obsessions, sexual obsessions, existential obsessions, um, aggressive obsessions. So if you are dealing with fears of contamination, this is one of you know the most challenging times, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. in OCD, there, I think um, it's very, maybe the most common form of OCD, it's the fear of contamination. However, right, when you look at how obsessions show up, they can be in so many ways. Like you can you can be in an amazing relationship and you may have the doubt, do I love this person? Is this person right for me? 
does she love me? Right? So that's more like the relationship of OCD that we call it. Or people can have somatosensory OCD. Am I breathing right? Do I have enough lubricant in my eyes? Do I have enough saliva? Right? Is this a sign of cancer? So I think, yes, if you have fears of contamination, very, very rocky time, right? Yeah. Um, but the point I think is that it is human experience to have these obsessions, fears, worries, and anxieties. But if we approach them with like, oh my gosh, why I'm having this, then I'm developing this fear about these reactions, right? The fear about the fear. So the idea here is to learn to accept that wherever I go, I am going to have some form of fear in some shape, in some way, and some anxiety in one way or another way. It just happens, right? But that doesn't mean that we're broken or something is wrong with us, right? It just means that we're humans. Yeah. Um, but the fear of the fear comes from that in which we get afraid about this yucky stuff that we experience and that we are going to experience. Yeah, there, there's a lot of people that where they start experiencing, whether it's a panic attack, anxiety, right? And then they start questioning themselves. Uh, Ellis actually says it in one of his lectures uh, online uh, where he says we are going through an anxiety attack or panic attack. Therefore, our mind is distorted, but yet we then are trying to use our distorted mind to solve while, why we are experiencing what we're experiencing, thus doubling down in the middle of an anxiety attack to create a panic attack because we are using our, our current abnormal mind that's experiencing the panic to solve why we are abnormal, which will then only lead to continued abnormal thoughts, therefore pushing the anxiety and panic even further. Yes, yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think he was he's such an interesting character, right? All his writing, right? Here's what I can tell you that it's a big shift. Um, it is true that, that maybe the, the earliest behaviorist, including cognitive behavior therapist Albert Ellis, right? Albert Bandura, right? There used to be so much distinction. Oh, you have him there? He's over oh, there. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. There used to be a distinction between what's a regular thought what's regular thinking, and what's distorted or abnormal, right? And so much of the books have been written in that way. So here's what I can tell you as a more contemporary behaviorist, right? We don't think too much in terms of oh, what's, what's distorted and what's normal. We're thinking more in terms, you know, the mind has a life on its own. The mind is more like a content-generating machine. It's constantly coming up with thoughts popping up, popping up. Some of them are going to drive effective behavior. Some of them are not. And the reason here, if you think about it, when we label our thoughts as abnormal, that makes me bad. That makes that something is wrong with me, right? So I think that the terminology that people were using in the past were creating this distinction between normal people and people who have distorted thoughts, Interesting. Right? Interesting. Right? I'm listening. So these days, yeah, so I think these days the way that we think about this is that there is a continuum in which we all experience fearful thoughts, worry thoughts. That doesn't mean that you know some people are more normal than others. Every single human being is going to experience some thoughts. And think about it. If my body experiences something annoying, my mind naturally is going to try to make sense of that. It's going to come with a hypothesis. Some of these thoughts get reinforced a lot, right? Do we call that distorted or is that simply a protective function of the mind trying to take care of ourselves? It's not our enemy. It's simply trying to do its job to the best it can with what it knows. 
The mind is using just previous experiences, right? Why are we going to call that distorted? Interesting. When the mind is, right? The mind is just trying to protect us. In that right. moment, think about it, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. If I am, right? If I'm afraid of taking the elevator, my mind may tell me, Patricia, watch out because you may get stuck. And if you get stuck, what happens if there is not enough air, right? It's not that my mind is my enemy or trying to kill me. Actually, my mind may have come up with a thought before. And it's telling me just to watch out. Right. Now, I have to decide whether I go along with what my mind tells me or I approach taking the elevator so I can visit my friend who may be living in the 10th floor of this building. So what what creates that thought, right? So what you're saying is that the mind is trying to protect itself or you, right, Mm -hmm. Um, essentially itself. From walking into, say, an elevator, right, or um, you know, afraid of something, right, that may not be worth being afraid of. W- what is that, though, that if the mind is telling you to be afraid of something that rationally, right, we typically wouldn't or don't need to be afraid of? Is, is there a behavior aspect that, be, that, that triggers the mind over time to start to overanalyze a potential danger or threat? That, that's, that's what I'm kind of seeing what you're saying is that there's behaviors of our past that we do and repeat that leads to our mind protecting us just, I, I'd hate to say irrationally protecting us, but but protecting it, like the fuel that we're giving the mind perhaps yeah. is the behaviors that we do or experience through our lives. Does that become the fuel to how the mind is working, even though it's under a good guise? It's trying to protect yeah. us. Is, is, yeah. is that kind of yeah. what you're saying? I think you're articulating very beautifully what we will call, yes, sometimes some of our behaviors act as a maintain the problem, right? It's like sometimes some of the, if I don't take the elevator, right, that avoidant behavior is like adding a log to the fire of my fear, right? Now, what we also have to consider here in the larger scale, all of us were also wired to avoid pain. We don't like to be in a struggle, right? We don't like to experience physical struggle. We don't like to experience breakouts. We don't like to experience that, that these, um, constricted time in which we cannot hug people, right? So humans, we actually also have this predisposition to run away from what is uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, the fight, flight, or freeze response, right? That's right. And it's a normal thing, right? Mm -hmm. It just happens that sometimes some people may have more predisposition, sometimes physiological predisposition to be more on edge, right? And over time, because we start doing more Quickly, what our emotions tell us, like avoiding, escaping, or using safety crutches, then we build a cycle that gets reinforced. Uh, but I think you ask why a super cool question: Why does the mind come up with those thoughts, right? Um, and there is so many ways to answer that question. But reality is that in a given day, today, your mind and my mind, we're going to have an average of to six to eight thousand types of thoughts, including images. Six to eight thousand types of that. Imagine there is always background noise. I'm already exhausted just thinking about that. (laughs) I've now had a thought that I'm going to have six thousand thoughts today, and now I've thought that I'm exhausted. (laughs) Think about it. I think why does the mind come up with that? Because that's what the mind's supposed to be doing, right? The mind has to be generating content, and the mind also in the past think about the cave men and the cave women. They also have to get kept track of what could possibly go wrong. What went wrong? Were there, you know, were there wild animals? Was there any predator? Are my enemies in that area? Will I have enough food? So they kept them alive. 
not our mind today in 2021. 20? I went to 2020. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm with you. We're trying to fast forward out of 20 as fast as we can. Yeah. We'll go with it. 2021. This podcast is from the future. That's uh, that's fine. <laughs> I love it. People listening are going to be like, what the, what? Yeah. Well, at least we're out of it. Um, so, yeah, so like an, uh, so ev- from an evolutionarily development, an evolution development of our mind from the, from the past, right? Yeah. That's the idea, right? That it's helpful to understand some of these um, struggles that we experience today and that sometimes become a problem, right? They're also coming from evolutionary point of view and the point of view that our mind has a life on its own and it's not because it's our enemy. So this idea, again, that experiencing fear or having one of these um, distorted thoughts, right, the cognitive distortion that we used to call them, right, means that there is something different with us. I think it's just normalizing to me I appreciate uh, normalizing that the mind will come with all types of thoughts. Some of them are more helpful than others, right? Uh, but it's the behavior, how I respond to them, that sometimes will help me to have a richer and meaningful life, and other times may keep me stuck, right? So it's a different frame, right? So it's a very different well, I, frame. I, I see the, the difference. I, I love what you're talking about. It's a different perspective, right? Because I can see what you meant about from a, a cognitive practitioner. If that person yeah. is continually telling your your patient or someone that you're having irrational thoughts, you're you're creating those thoughts, you are kind of making the mind the enemy. And now the person is then left battling the automatic thoughts that, that happen or are currently happening, be that rational or not rational, or just call them content that's being generated. Mm-hmm. Then the patient is left arguing with themselves about why am I even thinking that? Why is my mind acting this way, changing the thought, recreating the thought, changing the thought? And and what you're emphasizing is that rather than battle the thought itself or be upset that the thought is there, embrace or accept, right, a- accept that this is what's this is normal this is going to happen and there's nothing wrong with my mind having a quotes distorted thought that this is normal that it's not actually distorted it's normalizing yeah i you know i think you summarize it so beautifully and you also tap into something very important you're right on the sense that sometimes we try to fight with our mind right like if I have a negative thought about Patricia, you know, you suck, you know, maybe I try to, in the moment, I try to come up with a positive thought and telling myself <laughs> all the amazing qualities I have, right? Yeah, yeah, no. So, we, we try to reframe it, right? Right? That's what they call right. it. Yeah. Right. The challenge is that we're never going to win our mind because the mind is coming up with many, many thoughts. It may work, you know, we may have a relief for a couple of moments until the mind comes up again right, with another criticizing thought. <laughs> so this idea of drop the fight with your own mind and let to make room. And doing things what you did naturally, same, I'm having a thought, right, I'm noticing this thought. Um, I usually, you know, um, I have labeled some of my thoughts and I teach my clients how to do this, but I usually, when I notice a lot of judgy thoughts, I talk about, here comes cranky Patricia. Here's cranky <laughs> Patricia showing up, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sometimes I talk about, here is judgy Patricia, right? Oh boy, she show up, right? <laughs> well, careful, you're, you're on your way to a multi-personality disorder. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think they've removed that from the DSM, but but you're, you're, headed, you're headed that way if you keep that up. <laughs> 
but I but I get it, right? It's it's giving categories or files that your mind can put the thoughts into um, to allow you to accept them. Is is this part of your ACT approach, the acceptance and commitment therapeutic approach? Yeah, that, that's one of the main skills, right? When we think about acceptance and commitment therapy, just to share with your audience, we're basically inviting a person and we invite all of us to accept all the yucky stuff that comes, what we feel, what we sense, what we think as it is, not as our mind tells us it is, to choose what matters to us and to take action towards what we really duplicate in our life. So this idea that living a meaningful life or doing what we care about is going to be pain-free is also not real, right? Um, or someone tell you they're never, ever going to have anxiety, that's unrealistic, right? Or, or you're a psychopath be- if you if you don't. You're, you're headed down that borderline personality disorder, antisocial line, if that's true. That's that's true. That would <laughs> you become a dangerous <laughs> person. <laughs> it's an outlier. It's an outlier. This idea that doing the things that we care about and being the people we want to be means that we're going to experience some form of um, some form of um, you know discomfort type of internal struggle, internal discomfort, and we can learn to make room for it. We can learn to accept it. We can learn to accept our thoughts, right, and keep moving instead of fighting and trying to convince ourselves of something different or overthinking things, right? So I think that shift, right, from fighting your mind again to making room from those thoughts, it's really a core process within acceptance and commitment therapy. And I can tell you that in my life has made a huge difference, huge difference. Um, I have been trained in that, you know, I have been trained as a radical behaviorist with these guys. With Albert I like how you Albert added Bakuda. a radical behavioralist. So you're a full on <laughs> Eric Erickson person. You're, you're Pavlov right in there all the way. That's right. Pavlov and Skinner, right? Now, yeah. what we don't know about Skinner, if I can share, is that I think it's really, it's really sad for me that he has been portrayed as this very uptight person, very mechanistic. Yeah. Uh, but he was a very, you know, very progressive in his time. If you have written Walden too, he was actually all about social revolution. He was all about collective knowledge. He was all about democratizing knowledge, democratizing science, right? Yeah. It just happens that somehow, sadly, that book wasn't too popular. So we are left with this impression of him as this very uptight person. But um, I recently was talking to someone who actually um, studied with him. And, you know, that, that, that what I hear was these sweet moments of connection and love and passion that he had, right? So I think, yes, these days, you know, as a person that was trained from that model, being, a, uh, being trained in hardcore cognitive behavior therapy, and then shifting my work to acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a form of cognitive behavior therapy, I can tell you that I have learned so much more. Um, I have learned so much more to become the person I want to be by learning to accept all the stuff that comes to me when I'm doing what I care about. I think before I was an okay person and I had an okay training. And it was good. It wasn't bad. And I think I did good work. However, I think things shifted a lot when I actually started really looking into my own struggles and sitting with them and describing them and noticing and building that muscle, that flexibility of actually sitting with gentleness, not to power through, right? So I think once we have that skill, 
it's incredible how much we actually kind of start doing so much more of the things that we really want to be doing. Yeah, the, the behavior approach and the ACT thing that you're talking about, ha, have you found um, that a behavioralist approach toward things like anxiety and OCT, o, OCD specifically are more of, are more effective than, say, the cognitive approach or uh, or any approach thereof? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, there have been so much controversy in that, you know, in all the areas of people that practice empirically support the treatment about that, right? What's better, right? And um, the research has been consistent in which both treatments are effective. They have been head-to-head studies comparing cognitive behavior therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy for social anxiety, for OCD, for panic. Um, so I think we know that both treatments are effective, they help people to get better. What I can tell you is that um, as a person, again, that has been training both models like deeply, um, to me, the conversations that I have with my clients about what matters to them and why we face our fears in the service of the things that are important to us are very different than other conversations I may have had in the past. So both treatments are going to be helpful, but how what happens in the room is a little bit different. Yeah. I think that the level of the interventions are different. Um, again, thinking about phobias, the, maybe the shortest example I can say is that if I am afraid of spiders, it's very different to ask me to hold the spider and look at that versus telling me if you practice sitting with the discomfort that comes with holding that spider, so you can go camping with your kids and you can go camping with your husband. That's a very different conversation, right? Yeah. So uh, facing our fears is hard. It's not easy. My gosh, it's a lot of work, right? But if we create a context approach where we are scared of because it matters to us, it matters to the people we love, then it's a very different conversation. So I think both treatments are effective. But the conversations in the therapy room are going to be different, and they are different. That is a great answer. That is a great answer. Um, anybody else that was a radical behavioralist or radical cognitive practitioner <laughs> would have said, yes, it's the best. It's period. That's what works, right? But I love that analogy that some of the interventions may be the same and have a similar outcome, but the conversation is different inside the therapy room. That That is a, a beautiful explanation uh, to to something that is very complex, I should say. It is very complex, right? And I think the last 30 years, this, you know, you ask something that, that has created so much controversy in the field, right? Um, however, again, what is important for people to know is that you don't have to be stuck with fears, right? But I think the acceptance and commitment therapy approach really invite you to face your fears in the service of your values. So it's a very different frame, right, when we are approaching the yucky stuff. What's one of your go-to interventions for somebody that's dealing with? Uh, I'll, I'll keep them separated because I know I know we treat them differently. OCD, I don't treat anymore. I have to back out. <laughs> I know you all treat them differently. <laughs> so uh, with anxiety, right? What's a what's a go-to intervention that that uh, you utilize often? Yeah, that's a great question, right? I think here is another thing that is different. Um, in the traditional model, we teach clients skills right away right? Like the first book that I did, The Mind of Emotions, maybe it's a sample of that. Now, 
And I can tell you over the last, you know, 14 years, my clinical work has been shifting. The way that I do therapy, the way that I do coaching with my clients has shifted. Um, I think these days more than teaching people right away the what to do, the technique or the skill, I am interested in creating this frame of change, right? Creating more this context, why we're going to be doing this. And to me, the conversation starts by actually um, sharing with my clients and doing some exercises, some experiential exercises to show how the mind has a life in its own. Because I think it's important to develop a new relationship with thinking and with our mind that is actually counterintuitive because we have been told that every single thing we think it's important, right? Like, it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that I exist, right? Right. Oh yeah. My, my, my mentor, Leo, would often say just because you think it, it doesn't make it so. That's right. That's yeah. right. But, you know, for us, right, because you also are trained. So I think that makes sense. But for the lay audience, for the millions of people that are working in the street, it's like, what? Yeah. And what we do, we respond to thinking quickly. So I think for me, I start a conversation by um, creating some exercises, doing some exercises to notice how the mind has a life in its own. I, I love then, that approach. Yeah, I love that approach. I, I That's when I practice, that's what I tried to do um, mm-hmm. uh, is teach people not just the what to do, but the why we're doing it and, and how this works. I, I thought, at least in... in, in in my my early years of practicing, I thought that if I could help people understand why this was happening, why we were doing that before I gave the how to, that there was there would have context in it. And so I, I love that approach. I'm very biased to 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 that approach. So I mean, that's I think that is a wonderful approach to do it. Did did you? Start doing that differently when, you know, when you first kind of come out of school, right? You're trying to do how they showed you to do it right. All right, here's the activity. We're just going to do this. We, we, we try to avoid saying what to do because we don't want client dependency, right? But we're, tr- we're basically showing what to do. Did you find that by showing just what to do wasn't nearly as effective as showing how and why before the what? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you're asking very hot questions. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I think um, I think I know I know the outcome has been good in both ways. Um, however, what I can tell you is that what I see that there is a huge difference is that um, the last couple of years um, creating more this frame of why we're going to be doing this, how we're relating to thinking, how we're relating to fears and anxiety in general, create, I think, a more long-lasting effect for people that in 10 years, when they are not in therapy, when they are not getting any coaching from me, when they experience fear, they don't respond to it with like, oh my gosh, well, I'm afraid. They're actually more equipped to face life as it comes and with the moments of that may show up to them. So to me, that will be one of the biggest difference I have seen. That's a massive difference and a very politically answered. You're very nice. They both work well, but this one just, well, works for the rest of your life and longer <laughs> ever. <laughs> so yeah, that approach. So um, you talked about some experimental uh, activities, right? Exper- yeah. Exponential uh, activities. Well, what's one of those activities, right? That, assume I'm, I'm, I'm in the room with you, right? Th- those are some of my favorite yeah. activities to do from a behavioralist standpoint anyway. They got so yeah. many cool ones out there that, that, that you can do. Um, but, but what's one? that uh, you may do okay there are many uh but i can so let's say 
if I ask you right now, Adam, I want you to do the best you can. Really, I want you to try super hard to not think about your girlfriend who you do a podcast with. Don't think about her at all. Just do your best. What happened? Yeah, that's all I'm thinking about. It pops up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another experiential exercise that I invite people to do, um, I invite you to watch what your mind comes up for one minute. And all what you have to do is check if the thoughts are from the future or the past, right? So we label them. Mm. And these are just tiny examples to show, again, how the mind has a life on its own and how this idea of fighting with our mind doesn't work. <laughs> you mean we can't just control every single thought we're ever having and just reframe it all and be perfect? No, no, that's not the <laughs> point. I'm sorry. No, no, it's true. No, you're you're right on point. I mean, uh, I, I've often said that anxiety lives in future thoughts. Depression lives in the past thoughts, right? And I was when you asked me try not to think about it. I was staring over at the other microphone in the studio. So all I had to do to to not was think about present. I had to say, all right, that microphone has that on it. The curtains are gray. Uh, it's it's too hot in my studio, right? I was trying to stay in the present to can, to change the mind from what you told me not to think about, which obviously <laughs> I'm going to think about. Yeah, well, that's the idea. So that will be one experiential exercise, yeah. and this is a short one. But we do many more in the room, right? Because the idea within acceptance and commitment therapy is that more than trying to learn um, stuff with thinking, right? Thinking about thinking, right? We're trying to create the experience and really learn to look within and have the experience to relate to something. It's like if you're reading about Bolivia, if you're reading, you know, in a book about Bolivia, my country, you get one experience. But if you travel to Bolivia, if you smell, you know, the empanadas in Bolivia, if you feel the heat in Bolivia, very different, right? Mm-hmm. There is learning by thinking, there is learning by living. So in acceptance and commitment therapy, we create, um, we facilitate these experiential exercises for people to have the experience of what we are discussing and how, you know, that's one way of creating the context. I, I love it. I can easily see how beginning to show people how the mind is operating, basically allowing them to become an observer of their own mind and how it works can lead them toward that first part of, of, of your focus there, ACT, of the acceptance part, of accepting what the mind is going to do. And so let's talk about the commitment part, right? So we've talked a lot mm-hmm. about the acceptance part and accepting yeah. our, our mind, our thoughts, our experiences, right? Uh, let's move into the commitment part of your ACT approach. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you for asking, Dave. It's one of my favorite parts, although the whole model is just very <laughs> special to me, right? It's just, it really speaks to my heart, as you can see. Um, when we think about commitment, one of the um, misconceptions has been that it's all about just do it, like the Nike ad, right? Just do it, just face it, right? Just get it over, right? Right, just hold um, the spider, just get in the elevator, just, yeah, just hold the snake, right? Whatever it is. That's right. As it will be easy to do like that. So within acceptance and commitment therapy, within the model, and at least in the way that I practice it, is that I invite people to make this choice, this choice with intention and paying attention to what I really want to be doing because it matters to them. Now, what is important here is that we're not telling people that none of you know that they 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 should dismiss all the yucky stuff that comes up. Right, like that fear, the anxiety. Right, we're actually telling people: Can you? Are you willing to commit? Are you willing to make the choice to jump in the elevator or hold this spider 
while your heart may beat fast, while your hands may get a little bit sweaty, and just see how it goes. So we're not, you know, inviting people to to dream about this perfect moment, right? Because far is far from that, right? But we're inviting people to commit to sit with this yucky stuff and do what is important with them with curiosity, with flexibility, because we also cannot secure outcomes, right? I cannot tell people that when, they, when you know, if you hold the spider 15 times, it's going to be amazing. You will love it. I don't know. I don't have a clue, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I cannot tell people you won't feel anxious at all. You know, some people may, some people may not. I do not know. But it's about the commitment part is about making this personal choice to do what is important to me and to make room for all the stuff that comes when I'm doing that thing that is important to me. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I want to kind of switch gears, sort of, but not really. Sure. Is a uh, two-part question, really, in the beginning. Is OCD itself, or when OCD shows itself, is this typically after, or um, does anxiety come first, I guess, is a question. Do, you, or do, do people typically experience anxiety on some level, and then it blossoms to OCD? Or is it, or, or is it very... Or can you have the OCD experience, right, be experiencing OCD without having to experience any anxiety? That's a great question. I think in the past we thought about, well, OCD is a form of anxiety, right? Okay. Uh, it's, see, when you think about anxiety, we have phobias, right, about situations, activities, right? Then we have uh, social phobias when I'm afraid about public speaking or making a, um, I'm afraid about making a fool of myself. Uh, or you have panic disorder with a fear about the panic sensations. Uh, what happens with OCD is that it, ha- it can take so many variations that that's what has its own category right now. But certainly it's a form of anxiety. And it is possible that a person that, you know, never, you know, experienced social anxiety, they have OCD, right? So certainly it's possible, right? Um, I think, again, one of the challenges that has been with OCD, the research has shown us that when a person has social anxiety or panic attacks, Usually, they may go in one to two years to see a therapist. Um, a person with OCD may take eight to 10 years to be in the room with a therapist receiving treatment. Um, and it, it's the, the earlier you catch it, the better. I mean, I'm asking is it the earlier you get yeah. on OCD and treat OCD, the better? Yes, absolutely, yes. The challenge we're facing is that even though we do have treatments that work and are highly effective and compassionate, uh, one, people don't know they're dealing with OCD because we think that OCD is sometimes only about the fields of contamination, but also we label OCD as people who are doing cleaning and stuff, right? But obsessions, right? Obsessions actually can latch into very irregular thoughts like love, right? Like uh, bodily sensations and can have wacky thoughts. So the form in which obsessions can show up, right? It's not just these fears of contamination or fears of illnesses. There really can be fears about, am I, being, am I being a good therapist? Do I love my children, right? What if I harm my baby? And it comes for some of them with so much shame. Imagine a woman that just delivered a baby and is excited to be a mother and is excited to this new face in her life. And they has this image about stabbing the baby or dropping the baby. It's an awful image, yes. But if you take your mind very seriously, it's, you know, some people may say, because I think so, it makes me so. So then this woman who has been really preparing her body, her life to become a mother is like, oh, my gosh, am I a murderer, right? Mm-hmm. 
Or a person walking on the street and then suddenly they have images of naked children and they wonder, am I a pedophile? Do these men are like children? I cannot handle with my nieces, right? So obsessions can come in so many ways. Sadly, we haven't talked too much about it. Sadly, we have spent so much time really talking about, you know, that the fears of contamination. Or what you hear is in the media, sometimes there is what they call the functional OCD. I can assure that for my clients, the pain and the suffering that comes when having from obsessions has nothing to do with cleaning behaviors. It's really obsessions have so many forms. Imagine when you're doubting that you love your children as an obsession. Imagine when you're doubting if you are, if you're living your faith as you're supposed to. Mm. So, or imagine walking on the street that, or imagine in this conversation, I look at you and my mind say, what if Adam is stealing my knowledge when looking at me? It sounds very wacky, right? Mm -hmm. But the mind, again, can go in so many ways. So obsessions can, can latch into very regular things. I said in very, you know, and unusual things. It just happens that we don't talk about it because they come with so much shame. In which, you know, if I am a mother that just delivered a baby, how do I tell my husband I'm afraid I will stop my baby? How will I tell my doctor when they may remove my kid? Yeah. Right? So no. So actually it was very hidden and sadly because it gets hidden. And if sadly they go to a therapist that is not specialized in OCD, the degrees of shame actually keep, you know, covering everything. And um, then it begins to manifest into things like hand washing, grabbing doorknobs three times, whatever that may be, right? So the OCD itself isn't the fact you, you may put red shirts on red hangers, right, or wash your hands often and clean something all the time. It That's really a symptom that's coming from something inside that's either an obsessive thought or an experience, possibly maybe even a trauma? Is that true? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think there has been a lot of um, stuff written about that. Not all clients with OCD have a history of trauma, right? Agreed. So I can tell Agreed. you, no, so that's not the case. Could some people develop OCD that started with a traumatic experience? Yes, as hundreds of things are possible. It is possible that tomorrow I may die in a car accident, right? So it's possible. But I think, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so... I'm certainly not a trauma list. I'm, I'm not a, a trauma list where everybody believes all addiction is based in trauma. All everything is based in trauma. I'm certainly not one of those. I know people are. Uh, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I wanted to point that out, that it doesn't, just because someone may be experiencing that, doesn't mean that they've experienced trauma. And I, I kind of want to lead to your la your last, your most recent publication here um, yeah. for teens with, with OCD and what they're experiencing. Um, a couple-part question. Have you seen a rise in teenage OCD and anxiety? Uh, and if so, what do you think is causing that increase of anxiety or what pushes a teen to eventually begin to show these obsessive compulsive uh, disorder symptoms? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, it's a long I one. It's a long one. It's a long <laughs> one. Right. In terms of racing, I think in the case of OCD, what I think is that we are doing a better job catching it earlier because we are doing a massive work. And, you know, I'm speaking about large organizations, right? Nonprofits who are doing the best they can to disseminate information, right? So we don't label, you know, things um, 
we don't label things or dismiss some indications that could be OCD, right? So I think there are some campaigns happening at the schools, uh, nonprofits doing the job. So I think what we have is that we are doing a much better job to catch it, but I know it's not enough, right? Because when I go to give talks to schools, I still hear about things that they look so, I think, uh, that could be related to OCD, but we're dismissing them, right? For example, one of the struggles we have with the schools so you see how some of these kids develop perfectionistic behaviors. Um, sure. My practice is in an area in which there is a lot of, I think, desire to achieve academic excellence, right? So these kids are studying for hours, right? Hours, and they want to go to business school, and they prepare themselves since middle school, right? It's incredible. They are thinking about college in middle school, right? Um but I think what happens with OCD, for example, if people have this fear about making mistakes, a compulsion that comes quickly, they're going to be checking, 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 checking. They're going to be editing their job. They may also avoid actually turning the paper in because what if it's wrong? Or when they're taking tests, they're replaying, right? Or when they finish taking the test, they may be asking their friends because they're asking for reassurance. What did you say in that question? How did you answer that? So, we, you know, as a, as a person... People who are not familiar with OCD, we may say, oh, my gosh, they are so responsible. They're being so responsible. But actually, they may be feeding into OCD behaviors, right? Or you have children that go home and they tell their parents everything, mom, and this happened and that happened and that happened. Yeah. And, mom, quick question. When I was, in, you know, we're doing some exercise, I, you know, I don't know how, how it happened, but I was looking at my friend's and my friends um, test, does it mean I'm a cheater? Am I a cheater? And the mom says, no, of course, no. So we have sometimes kids of that compulsion. They are confessing every single thing they are doing. And they also are asking for reassurance, right? Mom, mom, you know, I was with my friends and some of them, they use the F word, but I didn't. I did it. I'm okay, right? So it may look benign, but what you have is this hidden fall in which the kid is asking for reassurance that he's not bad, that he didn't do anything wrong, right? So I think, imagine that for years, we didn't discriminate that teachers didn't know, parents didn't know. And while we have done a good job, we still have a long way to do in which we can actually wonder what's that? What happens if you don't tell me every single thing that's happening at the school, right? Uh, what happens if I don't answer this question that whether you're a cheater or not by accident, you know, if by accident you look at your friend's test, right? So I think what we have right now is that I think we're doing a better job catching earlier some of the signs of OCD in particular, but I don't think it's enough. Uh, with social anxiety, we do have the same that some of these kids, right? Uh, we say, oh, they're just quiet, right? They're not, you know, they're not a problem in the school, right? But actually some of them, I cannot tell you how many times I have worked with high school kids. They're petrified about going to college. They cannot apply for jobs because there really has become a struggle in their life, like it's in social phobia, when you are afraid about making a fool of yourself, right? So it actually can be very debilitating, Um is it getting better? Yes. Do we have a long way to go? Absolutely yes. Right? Absolutely yes. So I think while now with the pandemic, with COVID-19, um, sadly, one of the things that we, we are witnessing is that certainly there is going to be a race of anxiety and depression. Yeah. The summers are not the summers, right? There is a lot of physical restrictions, emotional restrictions. The kids are spending hours disconnected from their friends. They are doing the best they can, all of us, right, at right. a global level. 
the reality is that as we continue to navigate through this time, I am certainly witnessing more levels of depress and, uh, depression and anxiety and all the stats are showing that, right? And, and imagine also we're going to see, I think, more burnout also of all mental health providers and yeah. health providers, right? I think I that think, I think that's already been happening. I think people that are, um, by the time the insurance companies are reducing their payout rates even further for psychologists, mental health, and social workers, um, I mean, it's bad. Insurance is beating them up. I mean, it's... It's a. It, I'm telling you that I left that field for various reasons. Um, corruption on the higher ends of it, treatments of it, but the the burnout rate of people that that work in that field. I don't think people truly understand how much time and putting into it really is. So yeah, that I think you're right. I think we will begin to see that that burnout rate increase. Obviously, there's rates uh, increase of anxiety and and things. Um, speaking to your uh, your ACT workbook for teens again. Um, yeah. let's say I'm a, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, right? And I, I have a teen daughter, um, or one daughter, I don't know, maybe I got two or three, right? But this daughter who's some in her teens, uh, has developed some severe OCD, right? Um, be that, uh, uh, germs doesn't washing hands constantly, right? Won't sleep in their own bed. Um, you know, is, is fearful to even do that, um, has gone to this extreme, um, what, one, what would be the first step those parents should take? And two, what are some things that the, not only the child, but the parents could do, um, for, you know, do themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, so I think the first one, if the parents are going to look for a provider, I will strongly recommend to search for a provider that specializes in exposure response prevention. Um, ERP uh, or exposure response prevention is the, the standard treatment for facing our fears, facing obsessions, right? Now, I think it's also important to ask a provider, right? How, how many days a week are you doing this exposure? There is a huge difference if a provider is doing exposures once a month or once a week versus every single day, right? The scope of what you have seen, right, how you approach it, I think someone with experience is going to be so much more helpful. Um, so exposure response prevention is the frontline treatment. In terms of what to do if parents are... That, that was ERP, this, um, right? ERP, exposure yes, ERP. response prevention. Okay. You got it. You got yep, it. Yep. Um, so I think in terms of what to do, the first one is to not force the kids to face their fears. I know, I know as parents, of course, you want them to get better. If you see that avoiding that is struggling, right? If we see that they don't know something, of course, we, can t- we, we want to teach them. The challenge is that, remember, that facing the things we're scared of is not easy piece. It can be petrifying, right? And, and kids are going to be crying. And for some of them, they're going to be angry. So approaches like just do it. Oh, come on, just come and give me a hug. Who cares if you think I'm contaminated? You know, that's crazy. Just come and give me a hug, right? Or stop crying. Just, you know, just touch the doorknob, right? So messages like that are perpetuating shame and they're making it really hard for the kids to face their fears. It's not, I know feel sometimes it's a natural thing for any parent to problem solve, but pushing the kids actually alienates them so much more. Because if they're having any other fear, they may not tell you because they're afraid they're going to push them, right? Um, so the power through messages, just do it, right? Or, or you know, I don't understand or stop crying or why are you so moody or why are you so angry? It actually are not helpful, but 
maybe what they can do is ask them what's really scary about it. You know, I get it. It's really hard. But if you touch the doorknob or if you hug your dad, what, what's really hard about it? I think drop the problem solving approach, go into the appreciating and learning mode without judging, without criticizing, without telling the kids right away what to do. Right. I think yeah, that's op- that's almost yeah. opposite of what most parents are taught they're supposed to do by their parents. Right. <laughs> it is just accept the fact that that's what your kid's experiencing um, and, and listen and understanding of that, that that's that is some very good knowledge that let me and to further the question, if a teen is out there or a young person or anybody really yeah. is experiencing OCD symptoms, because I know OCD is different than anxiety. Right. So uh, if, if they're experiencing some OCD symptoms right as a teen or well, young adult doesn't matter um what's just one tip you could you could give them that maybe maybe they can't get into treatment right maybe they can't afford to see somebody what's just something that they can use a, a little bit daily that's a small tool for them you know to to try to use a little bit it's a beautiful question um well, I have a bunch of tips, right? Let's see. Let's see how I do with that question. Um, but I think the first one will be to tell all the things that you are not broken and it's not your fault. It just happens that you have an overreactive brain and your brain is jumping up and down with so many thoughts, weird thoughts, fun thoughts, and some of them are just very wacky. But that has nothing to do with who you are as a person. It's actually courageous to be walking with an overreactive brain. So tons of respect for every teen with OCD right now that listens, because I think it's really hard. And in terms of what to do, um, I will invite them to remember that as hard as it sounds, you can need to step back, right, and just watch what your mind is doing. There are skills you can do. You can practice some deep breath. You can roll your shoulders back. You can maybe pretend that you are a redwood tree and anchor yourself with your body. You can press your feet really hard on the floor, maybe press your hands against your legs. And just to remember that you are in a particular moment and get out of your head, right? The biggest thing you could do is unplug from your mind and reconnect with your body. Um, so that the, those will be maybe just the, the, the main things I will suggest. But the biggest thing is that you don't have to be stuck with OCD. There are things that we can do. And that's the reason why I wrote a book, actually. I think um, if it's okay to share, um, please, the please. last the last 14 years doing clinical work, well, 17 years now, um, one of the things is that I knew the treatments work, but also I think with families and kids, there is a very different dynamic. And it's what you were saying is that Parents will tell the kids what to do, and therapists will also tell the kids what to do. And the challenge is that some kids get fed up. And if you think developmentally speaking, seven years ago, there was one teenager that showed up in my therapy room, and the kid has show, has seen by them maybe five different therapies, all of them very skillful, doing beautiful work. The family was a loving and caring family, but the kid dropped treatment five times already. And the OCD was just really, really bad, very debilitating. This kid couldn't go to school, couldn't sleep in his bedroom. The family couldn't take trips. But when I asked the kid, very wise kid, very savvy, very sassy, he told me something very powerful. He said, Dr. Z, I know I have to touch things. I know I have to do exposure. But I can't take it, the therapist tell me, and that my parents tell me the same thing. I hate that. 
to be honest, you know, that was, hmm. I think, the moment when I realized something has to change, right? And I tried. The book that you have is now, you know, while well, I wrote it in one year, but it's really thinking about and trying different things with my clients, different graphics, different illustrations, different ways of delivering things for years in terms of if we have a treatment that works, how can we make it more accessible that that team doesn't drop treatment, that that tree, that kid doesn't go two, three years without actually facing his fears? And not because he doesn't want it. He wants to face them, but the setting wasn't helpful, right? So I think um, I in the it. book, what I did is coming up, um, a, colleague of, a group of colleagues of mine, they developed what is called the choice point. And I, what I did is modify the choice point for OCD um, and why this is super cool, because teenagers don't like to be told what to do, what to think, what to sing, what music to listen. They like to choose. So in my book, from, that, from chapter one, the kids are choosing how to face this fear. The kids are choosing how, what the skill they are going to use, how they're going to relate to their obsessions, how they're going to relate to the panic that comes sometimes with some of them. How are they, are they going to ask for their families for support, right? So the whole model, the choice point for OCD in my workbook, it's really about capitalizing the natural skill and ability we all have, but particularly as a teenager, they have so much more. Look what they're doing. They're testing boundaries. They're saying their opinions. And if you see what's happening today in the world, the kids are running the show. They are complaining. They are protesting as they're supposed to. So the book actually capitalizes that. And I also have a letter for parents. When I, you know, with kindness, I share some of the things that I share with you. I say, you know, do not force it. Do not push the accelerator. Let your kid run the show and be in the, uh, be, uh, I think, the leader of how he's facing these things. Um, so the book really capitalizes this, again, natural capacity to choose. And it was coming from a place in which, given that, you're right that I think getting access to a specialized therapist is hard yeah. and it can be expensive. Books are one way in which we can make treatments more accessible, right? What has been very magic to me, believe it or not, is this year when I put a book out there, I got messages from teens, right? And from some young adults. Um, the young adult, there was one woman that she told me, I read a book and I wish I had I had this book years ago because high school was so rocky to me. Uh, so that was just really, really moving, right? Because while they are not perfect, right? I don't think my book is perfect. It's one way of doing facing our fears, one way of tackling OCD by using ACT and ERP. I think it can have impact because it's making something accessible for the kids that normalizes, right, what you're going through, and they can do at their own pace, right? So I think, there, to me, it was, was really a highlight of the year in the midst of the pandemic and COVID. Oh, Dr. Patricia Zarita, Ona, everybody. Tell everybody where they can find you, your Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, email, uh, um, website, etc. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so you asked me something about, the, you mentioned something about a podcast. Um, I just launched a podcast maybe one month ago. Um, thank you. Thank you for the inspiration. Uh, it's called Playing It Safe. Um, and the website is playingitsafe.zone. So that's one place, you know, for people to ask me. But what is cool is in the website, I have one section that says Ask Dr. Z. 
if people have questions about worries, anxiety, fears, or anything about ACT or other things, I am happy to actually answer those questions. Um, and then Instagram, my, my Instagram account is Dr. Z Behaviorist. And in Twitter, it's passionate behavior therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are a radical behavioralist. I, I see that. Radical behaviorist with tons of caring, with tons of caring. <laughs> <laughs> and so where can, they, where can people get your books at? Um, they're all sold in Amazon, the ACT workbook for OCD for teens. And I also have another book for adults coming. It's Living Beyond OCD. Um, something to clarify, people have asked me this question, that the, the workbook for teens is also applicable for any adult. It just happens that in the book for adults, I have larger chapters in how to uh, develop a new relationship with fear and with thinking in particular. So the team ver- the, the other version just really creates more the context of change by using the choice point. But a person who is an adult can also find it useful. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, thank you so much, Patricia, for coming on the show uh, and sharing this information. Uh, Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just have to say that I'm a big fan of what you are doing. And today I just got this personal flavor of who you are in this world. So super grateful to have a chance to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Of course, the pleasure is mine and those listening too that uh, need the help and need the advice. Uh, So thank you. I'll let you know. Um, And and this show is open to you anytime you put out another book or need some help crossing over a podcast or something or uh, uh, anything you need. Uh, The show's here to help you out in in what you're doing anytime. Oh, Adam, thank you so much. That means a lot. My heart is beating fast now. So no. thank you. <laughs> no, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you very much. There are a lot of uh, a lot of people dealing with OCD and anxiety that um, really need the help and need someone like you that's focusing on, on that and how to treat that uh, in particular. So thank you for your work uh, and um, coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Uh, it is always a wonderful, wonderful uh, time for myself to have somebody on there that I know is still out there helping people, uh, practicing therapy, you know, educating themselves, uh, questioning themselves and things that they do for a living. Um, you can tell there's passion in what uh, she is doing. I, I hope that she was able to help you today. Uh, and look, if you happen to be in the, the California area, not even if, if you happen to be in anywhere really you can go to east bay behavioral behavioral therapy center.com it's east bay behavior therapy center.com east bay behavior therapy center.com they have um her and her staff over there they do some online uh council things that they're doing um i'm actually trying to pull it up for you right now so you have it um they do some um, online work with teens. Uh, I know um, the OCD online classes that they're doing, uh, all kinds of info, therapy, coaching, different conditions, all the books that uh, she talked about and that we shared on the podcast today. Uh, you can find links there too. Uh, just a wonderful guest to have. I, I really do hope you all enjoyed having Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona on the show. Thank you all for subscribing, listening. Please follow on Instagram, follow on Twitter, subscribe to this podcast if you have not already, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere else, and especially on YouTube. Uh, if you like to watch the shows, we put them there. I also have a, about five or six other shows that I do. 
uh, that you can find on the YouTube channel uh, as well. So um, thank you all for listening, sharing, subscribing, comment, anything you want to. Send some emails, Cognitive Rampage Podcast at Gmail. Uh, if you have any guests that maybe you'd like to hear on the podcast, somebody uh, that you know you think uh, would be good on the podcast, send those emails there. Maybe something you're going through too. Feel free to email that as well, and I'll uh, see if I'll address it too on the podcast, see if I can help you out. But I uh, hope everybody is taking care of each other. But more importantly, I hope you're taking care of you. Hope you are living your cognitive rampage. Love you.